0: This is the Bartender Journey Podcast.
1: It's the Bartender Journey Podcast, number 233. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, over the past 232 episodes, we've only talked about wine one time. All the way back in show number 105, we spoke with Elizabeth Schneider of the Wine for Normal People podcast. Today, we'll chat with Monica Elling, who wrote the book Wine 123, All You Need to Know About Wine in 30 Minutes. This book packs lots of knowledge into a small package that's easy to get through. As bartenders, we need to know about a lot of different stuff. Wine is a big part of what we serve each shift, but uh, speaking for myself, maybe I don't have as firm a grasp on it as, say, whiskey or something. Uh, So, of course, wine is a huge huge subject. People dedicate their entire lives to it. The education to become a sommelier is, uh, well, it takes years and a lot of money. There's various levels of education, certifications, and exams. Uh, by the way, there's a great documentary about all this. I think I watched it on Amazon video called SOMM, S-O-M-M, and uh, for sommeliers attempt to pass the prestigious master sommelier exam, a test with one of the lowest pass rates in the world. But uh, what can we do as bartenders to increase our wine knowledge? Well, I'll talk to Monica about it. Of course, Monica Ellings, Wine123, All You Need to Know About Wine in 30 Minutes or Less is our book of the week. It's a perfect crash course in wine. And we'll have a link up to that on bartenderjourney.net. Anytime you use one of those Amazon links on bartenderjourney.net, you, use, you help out the show just a little bit. doesn't cost you any extra, but uh, anything that you buy in that sort of session after clicking through to Amazon from bartenderjourney.net helps out the show. We'd appreciate it. For our cocktail of the week, I suppose we could have come up with something kind of weird and obscure with wine in it. But uh, since we're talking about wine this week, we'll do a wine cocktail. But sangria makes people happy. Where where I work, we don't carry any whites, infidel or Muscle. But on the on occasion somebody'll ask for one of those or any sweet wine. Uh, In that case, I'll offer to make a sangria to order. Some people swear that sangria needs to sit around for a while with cut-up fruits to macerate in it, but uh, I've found that that can work, but there's a definite um, sweet spot as far as how long it should sit. After a couple hours, it's too much. The influence of all the pith uh, will start to make it bitter, and the pulp from the fruit starts to make its way free of the fruit and floats around in your drink. So making it to order, or à la minute, is is a great way to do it, and I found the answer on how to do that. On Jeffrey Morgenthaler's site, he—he's uh, a brilliant guy, and uh, well, don't let him—don't let him hear you say that. He uses red wine, grumigné, fresh orange juice, a little bit of simple syrup, and a dash of Angostura bitters. It's delicious and is a real crowd pleaser. Jeffrey's recipe is uh, on his site is for a full bottle of wine, uh, so I'll, I'll let you. Uh, experiment with the proportions for making just one glass, but I'll have a link to his uh, his recipe up on BartenderJourney.net. Suffice to say, a little bit uh, goes a long way when you're making it um, by the glass, and the drink should really be mostly mostly wine in the gl- in the end. I mix it all in a big wine glass uh, with the orange and add a slice of orange and a lemon and a lime, and then some ice at the end, and uh, makes a, makes a nice drink. The same recipe works with white wine too for a nice uh, white wine sangria. All right, let's talk to Monica Elling. Hey, Brian. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm
0: great. How are you?
1: Good, good. Well, thanks for joining us today and uh, talking about wine. I have your uh, new book in front of me. Very nice. And uh, it says here, Monica's mission is to make the world of wine more approachable. That's, that's a good mission to have, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's something uh, all of us in the industry are aiming for.
1: Well, um, it's easy for wine to to get overwhelmed by wine, whether you're a uh, you know bartender or a connoisseur or, or a uh, consumer or uh, whatever. But uh, you go a long way here to uh, summing things up. But I do have some questions.
0: <laughs> Fire away.
1: <laughs> well, uh, let's start with uh, – I, I liked your line in the book, trust your palate. But uh, we also need to educate our palates, right? So what, what are some good ways to do that?
0: When I say trust your palate, I – I am talking about not specifically related to wine or to only wine um, because we've all grown up eating and drinking things and we have a sense of what we enjoy and what, where our preferences lie um, and to trust yourself enough to allow those preferences to speak when you are tasting different types of wine as well just feel comfortable that you like something or don't like something or you prefer one flavor over another.
1: It makes sense to me. And uh, yeah, cause it's easy to, you know, look at the cost of the wine and get, you know, influenced by silly things like even the label design and things like that. You have all these other influences coming at you, uh, and and the taste, uh, I mean, the taste is the most important one, though, right?
0: (laughs) It is, but uh, it's not going to be the first thing that people will uh, jump to, uh, depending on where a purchase is made. So if it's off-premise or on-premise, um, the, the packaging actually does have uh, a clear message to uh, the consumer, to all of us, ac- actually. And um, so that is, that is a first step towards making a selection of what you like. So it, star- it does start with the package in those instances. On premise, it's a little bit different because you're looking at a list and you're not so much looking at a bottle and uh, you have to think about the wine a little bit differently. But in terms of how to educate your palate, uh, there's nothing that uh, can speak to that as much as tasting and tasting again and again, and not always um, going for what's definitely already in your comfort zone. You can't expand your, your, um, your appreciation in any way except for trying something new. So don't be scared just try something and if you don't like it acknowledge it and and that's going to help you make better choices going forward
1: i like that and there's there's a lot of opportunities um to taste wine, whether it's uh, through, you know, as, as bartenders, we, also, we often have access to um, sales reps and things like that. But then even, you know, the, the local liquor stores might have, you know, tasting every uh, Thursday afternoon or something. Or, and there's a lot of websites you can go to as well, I think, to find um, tastings usually for free a lot of times. Uh, right? Do you, know, do you know of any in particular?
0: Um, there are also uh, all those, of course, and many, many uh, consumer wine events, and uh, people enjoy going to them. Uh, what we find uh, is that uh, very often people are hesitant, even though they've already paid for the ticket to try everything, they're very hesitant to try something beyond their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I encourage people to push past that because those opportunities are exactly what you want to find so that you can experiment and make decisions about your preferences in a, in a much better way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. A couple years ago, you know, I wasn't really into Pinot Noirs and uh, I, I thought, well, I don't really care for Pinot Noirs. turns out what I don't care for is cheap Pinot Noirs or bad, <laughs> badly made Pinot Noirs. I love great, you know, really well-made ones are amazing.
0: <laughs> well, and, and that speaks towards any wine. So people can make up their minds based on one particular tasting of a particular varietal or a blend and, and immediately discard the category. Uh, when I'm tasting something completely novel from a region that I am a little bit less familiar with or a new grape from a region that I am familiar with, um, oftentimes I, my first taste is just to provide a level of context. And I have to ask myself, okay, do I like or not like this grape and and this particular variety? Is it is it speaking to me in a positive way? or am I just not familiar enough with different winemakers who are uh, approaching it in a variety of ways? Um, And typically my answer, and and I tend to err on this, is that I, I need to taste more of this grape from this region so I have a better context to decide, is it what is what is speaking to me? Do I just not like the way this particular winery or winemaker approached it? Or I just am not comfortable with this grape? It's it's not something I would choose. So I and I have a specific example for this. Um, I spent years and years and years. Uh, being given this one variety, it's called Aus Riesling in Hungarian, Italian Riesling in or Welsh Riesling as it's referred to in the trade um by the very few people that actually consume this wine. <laughs> and for for years and years I, I thought I just do not like this grape. I can't I can't find a single wine that I enjoy. So after several years of attempting uh to find something enjoyable, I just gave up. Uh, five years forward, I went back and I had one, two, three, four, five wines from the same variety that were stunning, different styles, un-oaked, uh, slightly aged, um, and you know it—it it was a completely different world of the type of wine that I was getting. So what it told me was they just didn't understand the grape and the variety and the winemaking style that was best suited at a particular point in time and boy how things have progressed and how wonderful is that discovery
1: (laughs) that's an interesting interesting story but uh i want want to go back to the basics because i find so many a lot of bartenders myself included are you know very focused on spirits and we you know we love to make cocktails and we love to drink whiskey and but uh our wine knowledge maybe not at the level it should be you know So, so i really like to get into um, some basic stuff, um, especially uh, starting out with how, how to taste wine. You know, what's the, what's the procedure? I know there's uh, certain steps you take, so, similar to, to tasting a spirit, but uh, maybe slightly different.
0: Well, it's important to um, actually smell the wine and just to get a sense of what's in the glass. And how you think about that as you swirl it around a little bit and let it open up, you get a context uh, in the nose of the types of flavors you are going to experience in the mouth. And uh, so the swirling process uh, aerates the wine, gives it a little bit more oxygen, allows the flavors to bloom, and so you can get a sense on the nose for uh, what you're about to taste. And then afterwards, taking a small sip and letting it just uh, swirl around your palate Uh, That gives you a better context for what you're about to taste. And uh, I I think that it's a really important thing for bartenders when you're serving by the glass um, that you allow your customer to experience a sip before you actually pour the glass because it is the worst thing to be given a glass of something you could have told in one sip that you do not want to be drinking,
1: right? Right, yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll smell, take a little taste. Uh, that's uh, actually, that's one difference between tasting spirits with, with spirits. Generally, we don't swirl the glass because you just get a big blast of alcohol in your <laughs> nose. So, uh, that, that's an important distinction, I think. And then, um, we, we Taste it. We, I, I like to take a little, very tiny little taste, sort of reset my palate or clear away the thing that I ate or drank before, and then and then take a slightly larger sip. That works pretty well for me. And then uh, some, some people suggest you, um, you sort of aerate it in your mouth, blow, taking some some uh, air in through your through your lips, right, or or um, chew it, as they say.
0: Yes, yes, and, and those are a are little bit more advanced <laughs> steps. Um, you can totally enjoy the glass of wine without having to go through all of that uh, just by taking a small sip. But as you get more confident and comfortable, um, it, then, of course, uh, doing that in the mouth is is helpful uh, to get a full flavor of what you're about to taste and, and just sensing where on your palate the, the
1: wine sits. And... Uh how you hold the glass? I think you mentioned in the book. Uh, you always hold it from the stem. I I totally judge people on on that. <laughs> if they I don't, I think
0: we, all do. we <laughs> right? all do. It's it's the funniest thing when when somebody is uh, ordering a very very expensive wine at your table and and they've been drinking wine and have a collection at home and they grab that goblet and you just go oh.
1: <laughs> I know I know I really uh I probably judge too much on that but but uh yeah. If, if you don't do that, everybody hold your wine glass by the stem, please. <laughs> Just the same reason, <laughs> it, you know. I always tell people, why, why does that glass have a stem? You know, it well, you know, think, not, about, it, not think not. about it for a second. It's so you don't warm the wine up with your hands,
0: exactly. Although, uh, it begs to now point out to that there are stemless glasses in the marketplace, and uh, so while they're very practical and they do have a good base and so forth uh and uh, l- probably less breakage um on premise the issue does become that the temperature will be changing as you're holding it
1: and there, you know there's something to, to tradition as well i think of course always yeah yeah, yeah. So uh, in your book, did I mention the title yet? Wine 123, All You Need to Know About Wine in 90 Minutes or Less. Um, you you have a, what you call the wow scale. You can you tell us about that?
0: Yes. I, I think people get um, very confused and, and concerned about understanding all the flavor descriptions that wines are typically given, the type of fruit, uh, you know, this is blackberry, this has lead pencil, tobacco, I mean people get put off by that and and concerned that they are not finding those flavors. What they do sense though uh, at a much much earlier stage of evolution but but pretty much we we tend to identify this. Um, through wine tasting experiences for the rest of our lives is the weight of wine. Uh, Light bodied, medium bodied, heavy bodied, those are really good indicators as to the type of wine you're having and you can make that identification pretty readily in the mouth. Um, You don't need to know too much just to understand how it feels in your mouth. And then when you gain confidence about saying, okay, well, now the last four wines I've had were all light-bodied white wines, I'm really enjoying that. And no, I don't like a heavy-bodied white wine. Uh, then you start to open up the category of what it is that you're looking for um, when you're going to purchase a
1: product. You can actually start that uh, with the color, right? You start You, start, you can. Uh, judging it by uh, the on the scale of one, two, three, but and by the color,
0: the color is a is the first indicator. As you pour, as it uh, wine is poured in the glass, you can see if it's light colored, medium colored, or really dark, and that's an indicator of the weight. And uh, that's a, a very, very simplistic uh, and easy way to be able to define where your preferences lie.
1: I guess we need to talk about uh, uh, oak versus stainless steel, um, which is, uh, you know, that's a big uh, determination in the factor in the um, taste of the wine in the end, whether whether it's aged in oak or not, right? right?
0: Definitely. um, That element has an impact on the weight of the wine, um, how much oak is used. Uh, You don't have to think about it. uh, For for consumers, they don't need to think about all of that, but it's a good idea to just understand uh, why some wines are heavier than others. Um, A grape is a grape is a grape, until which time... Uh, it goes through the process of either being fermented in stainless steel or oak or a combination thereof. And uh, it's just a good indicator also um, in terms of pricing. uh, When the wineries use oak barrels and They're not inexpensive. Um, The amount of oak barrel usage is going to have an impact not just on the weight of the wine, but also on the price of the wine.
1: And yeah, because those oak barrels are... Pretty expensive, and we 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 hear a lot about the barrels uh, in the whiskey world, you know. So we we know about that stuff. But uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about uh, for for bartenders that work like myself, and where the wine list is just huge, it can be pretty overwhelming. You know, we have thousands of bottles in our cellar, and guess what? I haven't tasted them all. But people often <laughs> ask me what I think of a bottle, you know. And, and so, what, what do you do in that situation?
0: Well, a couple of different things. Um, When you're being asked to provide some direction, I I do believe that the first question is, well, what do you enjoy drinking normally? That's a good guide to start narrowing down. As to what to offer anyone, um, the second part is what are you thinking of having for dinner? Because the food will have an impact on on how that wine is going to be received. Um, is it going to kill the food uh, flavors because it's so overwhelmingly heavy, or is it going to complement what is going to be served? Um, so those are guidelines, and it's it's really a. Conversation, and I think I lose or I, I describe in the book that that it is a two-way dialogue between the consumer and the team uh, at a restaurant, uh, so that you can better pin down what type of wines, uh, would be appropriate, uh, for, for the person who is, who's looking to have a wonderful experience. So while you may not know the specific wine, because some lists are thousands of wines, uh, you know, and, and that's just overwhelming for anyone. You will know something about the category, um, where it's some, it's, a conversation to have internally uh, with your wholesalers and their sales team and and their um, education team because their job is really to help you do a good uh, you know sell through with their products and yeah. and and so and some of that is really. Uh, a conversation between you and the sales uh, team as much as it is between yourselves and the consumer looking to have a dining experience.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a lot easier with the stuff we serve by the glass, you know, because we can actually taste it, you know. But the, when the when the wine list is so, so big and then, you know, somebody asks me, uh, you know, I say, I, I've already decided I want a, uh, you know, a Bordeaux from the right bank. And then what do you think? You know, like geez, this has just happened to me the other night. And I like, I haven't tasted any of those. I don't think.
0: <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's also very important uh, that you, you get to taste wines like that and that your sales, uh, force from the distribution companies brings you those types of samples, uh, yeah. on yeah. a regular ongoing basis, because for you, uh, to be out front of the consumer is super important. And like I said, it may not be the exact wine, but to, to know the category, um, and to know a little bit about it uh, is always helpful, and that's a level of internal training uh, that is ongoing. Um, But one thing that, you know, just getting back to the weight of wine, uh, if a customer uh, describes that they enjoy uh, Cabernet and they drink California most of the time, and uh, all of a sudden, they're asking you to make a reference of something different, but within the type of wine that they would like. It's, it's, uh, it's easy enough for you to be able to say, well, okay, so Bordeaux, uh, if it's left bank, it's predominantly Cabernet. Now I can offer that and stretch his palate a little bit. And, and that's kind of a, an exploration process that, that is fun for everyone.
1: Yeah, I'd love to get into those. Um, just it, it is a little bit of a generalization because, of course, in, in Europe, uh, normally the wines are not named by the grape. They're named by the region, right? But, but we can say that, um, and you mentioned in the book, uh, if somebody enjoys American Chardonnays, they should probably – it wouldn't be a big jump to go to a white Burgundy because it's predominantly Chardonnay, right?
0: It is, and and so I I have this uh, very quick test with people, um, and uh, we talk about this all the time, and and we just did a a wine event uh, this weekend. There were, you know, a thousand people there, and I must have asked the question a hundred times. Oh, so you enjoy wine, you've had Burgundy before, and they say, yes, yes, of course, and... uh, Then I asked the next question, do you know actually what you were drinking? Mm -hmm. And the answer was 0% (laughs) new. So everybody was baffled. And how? why are we making this so complicated? If it's white burgundy, it's Chardonnay. If it's red burgundy, it's Pinot Noir. So all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, and now they can feel confident in going to a store and picking up a burgundy or at a restaurant and picking out a burgundy and understanding it and knowing what they're having and i I think my book is just trying to distill down to some key elements of knowledge that will make people more confident it's not everything you need to know about wine but it's a lot of the critical elements that'll help you feel uh, better about making choices
1: right and just to expand on that uh the the cabernet uh will relate mostly to a um, Bordeaux and you can get some clues from the bottles actually because generally uh, um, the Bordeaux bottle will be uh, shaped in the same way as a Cabernet which is sort of straight with a shorter um, neck right and then the Pinot Noir and the Burgundy have that uh, more slowly sloping neck and uh, I think you can take some clues from that.
0: Exactly. And um, so the same with wine glasses. Uh, and this is something with on-premise and service. Uh, I, I always look at when when I'm having a nice bottle of wine, are they going to match... The uh, glass to the wine uh, style that I'm having. So, is it supposed to be in a burgundy glass or a Bordeaux glass? Because the aromatics of how the wine plays out um, will be greatly affected by that. And uh, it's a surprising but fun test to do at home with two different types of glasses. And just pouring it into, pouring a Pinot Noir, for instance, into a Bordeaux glass and into a Burgundy glass will give you very different aromatics.
1: Oh, that's a good idea. I'd like to try that actually, because I always, I always say, ah, how much, how much of a difference is it really gonna make? But uh, that's a good idea to try them side by side. I like, I like things like that where you, you taste things that are the same except for one variable. You know, uh, we do that. I do that with cocktails a lot. Well, uh, we can talk about the uh, the labeling a little bit. Actually, I. Poured myself a little wine and one for you. Here you go. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) So I have a wine here that I really don't know much about. um, And I just wonder if you could help me through the label. Because the the label often has a lot of information that um, is helpful. On the other hand, I don't know what it all means. (laughs) So I guess the name of this wine is Vivanco. And it's from Rioja. So that's that's Spain, right?
0: That it is,
1: and uh, then it says V I U R A. I have no idea what that means. And it says Tempranillo Blanco. So that I know Tempranillo is a grape, right? Is is the other one? A, is that a grape? V I U R A. Yeah. How do you how do you pronounce that? Viora.
0: Viora. Okay.
1: Viora. Okay. And then there's one more grape, Ma, Matura. Nope. M A T.
0: Maturana.
1: Yeah, Blanco. Uh? Okay, and then Blanco. Yes.
0: So, so this is a white Rioja, and it's. Yeah, a lot going on, and uh, it doesn't help the American consumer who wants some complete clarity. Um, But what's good to know in this particular case, first of all, when you open up the wine and you pour it in the glass, it's going to be a straw, pale straw yellow, so Mm -hmm. it's going to be at the lightest end of the spectrum. Uh, These three varieties are from Rioja, Spain, and interestingly enough, most people are aware of Rioja, And think of red wines, but they make stunning white wines and rosés, rosados. But people can't actually tell you, just like with Bordeaux, they can't tell you what's in a Bordeaux. They can't tell you what's in a Rioja. And Now to confuse matters, now there's a white Rioja as opposed to a red Rioja. So uh, the wine world is not making life simple at all. And uh, so in terms of clarity for this particular wine, it's a blend of three white white. Uh, white varieties coming from the region of Rioja in Spain. And there it, it makes for a very light, crisp, aromatic, fresh white wine. There's no uh, barrel aging on this at all. And it comes from a, a leading producer named Vivanco. The uh, Rioja categorization on the red wines, uh, the core grape of Spain is Tempranillo, and it's a red grape. In this particular case, you have a Tempranillo Blanco, so a white version of the grape, which this particular winery has taken a lot of effort to resurrect. And, uh, but on the red side, on the flip side, there are differences in aging between uh, Rioja. So Rioja Crianza is aged less, Rioja Reserva is aged more, and there are definite guidelines. But I don't want to get too caught up in all of this because mm-hmm. that's not that's not what is important to me in terms of the consumer experience. And, and I think wineries, as we are moving on into a brave new century here where we need to think about how our wines are going to be selected by consumers, we need to do a better job of defining exactly what is inside the bottle and say – Light aromatic white wine, which will help enormously in uh, sales.
1: Oh, that's a good point because you are you are starting to see the European um, producers put maybe in very small letters on the back, like this one. Actually, it's very small; yes. it's kind of hard to read, but it tells you exactly what the what the um, proportions are of the different grapes. So um and I noticed that on a bottle I bought a bottle of um bordeaux today and, and same thing it told it did tell you the exact proportions so that's that's at least some information that you have you know some talking points to talk to your uh, guests with and uh so you have something but I like that idea of giving it um some descriptors rather than just the just the plain facts <laughs>
0: exactly and we encourage our clients our suppliers we work with wineries from around the world we encourage them very much and and it's a it's an evolutionary process because uh, of the history in all these regions and how they've communicated or not communicated Um, anything uh, on these labels in the past for producers to today really think about identifying in a clear and impactful way what's in the bottle so that the consumer doesn't have to think too much because the reality is given two wines on a shelf, one that says what it is, the other one not giving any clue whatsoever, um, the consumer is going to make the choice for something that's easy. While they want to explore and really uh, learn and have, with it, particularly today's millennials who have a uh, wonderful context uh, because they grew up with wine in their homes, um, they are looking to explore and to experiment. They're not looking for that process to be difficult. Right. <laughs> cool.
1: Give me, give me everything you know about that wine in ten seconds.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why? Why that long?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could be drinking it by then.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So.
1: Well actually I do have a uh, red Rioja here as well and uh so that's um it says it's this red wine is the result of careful selection of estate owned vineyards planted with tempranillo. That sentence doesn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> planted with uh, tempranillo. I don't get that.
0: Yes. Well it it just means it's um planted 100% with the tempranillo grape. Okay. So that's that's what's in the bottle.
1: What 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 should we look for in a and a red Rioja.
0: What you should look for in Rioja is essentially a beautiful, So it's going to be a on the heavier side of the scale of the wow scale of one, two, three. It's going to be closer in in the three category, and depending on producer, um, it's going to be at the lower high end of that. Um, it's going to have a full mouth feel. It's really fun. To taste wine on its own before you've had food, and then have a bite of food, or to you know have a couple of bites and then uh, have another sip and see how that experience changes in the mouth.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. And uh, yeah, I want to talk about food tasting, but actually, this this wine's delicious. Yeah, it is um, full bodied in that it has some um, yeah some weight in your mouth actually, and I, I slightly a little higher sugar content especially compared to that white wine i was just drinking but um i would think that that uh, a little more sugar will give it a little more weight in your mouth right
0: it will it'll give it a fuller mouthfeel feel, uh, no doubt so um again consumers are not going to be thinking about you know sugar residual sugar and and all these elements they're just going to think about do i like it do i not like it why do I like it? Uh, how do I get more of it if I do? <laughs> so, so we do want to, we do want to keep it relatively simple in, in that way, because you can, you can, wine is such a vast and changing, um, topic that you can be going all, all your, the rest of your life, looking at, uh, updated information on everything right, right. and get completely lost. So
1: I know that's what that's why I like to um bring it up on my show every once in a while I should probably do it more often but you know we're like I said we're so focused on cocktails and other things and the, and this is just a giant world that we also need to know about and uh but but we can't spend that much time we're not you know <laughs> we're not sommeliers that's for sure So so uh yeah food pair, food pairings they're uh, a little bit mysterious and and quite subjective I would think right but are there some, some rules of thumb we can follow
0: the easiest um the easiest way to think about food pairing uh is uh is this i and i make a reference to this with one two and three the one is lightest in weight of wine and if we think about the color of the scale so light white medium heavy that gives us an indication just of the progression. If you envision the same thing as far as food, light-colored food will pair readily with light-colored wine. And I'm not saying there can't be exceptions, but typically the flavors show in the color of the food you're being served. So it's not exactly rocket science to think about just pairing a light colored wine with light colored food. And the more you go down the scale, the more, um, the deeper the type of wine you you will be able to pair with what you're having. The idea of the wine and food pairing is, is experimental. It's not perfect. And you can have fun with that too. Don't think about it as, oh, oh this has to be just perfect. It's more trial and error. What I gave uh, in the book are just some guidelines but uh the best part is uh, to again try the wine without the food then try it with the food and the experience if it's really successful should be like a two plus two equals five that the two together are better than separately
1: yeah i love that but also i guess um something to think about is you can't let one uh overbalance or overwhelm the other right and that's that's what you mean by balance i guess
0: Definitely, yeah. and 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 that's where that's where if you're ordering, uh, you have a, a light-colored dish in front of you, and you're ordering a wine by the biggest weight, then you're going to not taste much of that food because the wine will overwhelm all the subtle flavors of that dish.
1: And I think uh, we've all been in that situation. I can I can think of a couple examples myself where uh, <laughs> the, the wine was delicious, but it just was too much for what I was eating. You know that's that's a tough thing. But yeah, you, you, you talked about um sp- spicy foods, Asian foods, Indian food that that could be a little trickier, right?
0: Yes, and uh, so when you're t- when you're looking at uh, hot flavors, You can actually play around a little bit, um, but a good rule of thumb is to, uh, when you've got super spicy, like Indian food, any type of Asian food, really, um, something fruity and bright is really a, a great choice because uh, it balances some of the heat so a bright acidic white wine will absolutely provide a great experience with something like that and and that's where i i tend to enjoy asian food very much because even though it may be red meat in there if there is enough spice actually a white wine with high acidity will work really nicely
1: that sounds delicious <laughs> well, uh white wine the um well white and red wine by the glass is such a challenge because you know if you uh, it's such a shame when you open something and then now you're not you know you don't sell it for a couple of days that same bottle and then you know after two or three days it's just i can't serve this to anybody anymore you know it's such a it's such a challenge trying to you know and depending on how many wines you serve by the glass and in, in my case we serve quite a few um it's a shame but any um tips for keeping our wine fresh once it's open
0: yeah it's uh, it is it is a challenge uh, for everybody um and this is what i find really helpful uh, the refrigeration at the end of the day is um important
1: uh, the red wine, uh, oh, the red wines as well right
0: red wines as well uh it just does help uh preserve uh the flavors and also you know any type of um uh, system while Corvin is being used uh now regularly in restaurants and that's been a that's been a wonderful wonderful addition to um uh, anyone who's in service because now you can offer a high range of wines that are going to be at a good quality level
1: right so those um, are the those are the um machines that hold the bottle and they pump um what is it argon gas right Yes. Yeah. Yes. We we use like the consumer model for a couple of our really high end wines, and it's so slow. It's just really not made for a, for a professional setting.
0: Yes, and and so that's that's super helpful. And um, so we we like to we like to use Coravin. Um, VacuVin is is also another tool, um, and I know a lot of wine professionals uh, use that. Uh, it just helps keep the wine a little bit longer. But I, I find that heavier-bodied uh, red wines hold much longer than uh, light-bodied reds like Pinot Noir. Bright, acidic white wines, it's, it actually is okay to drink those about three days, even four days having them because they just tend to preserve better with the bright acidity and the sugar levels.
1: That's Wow, yeah, I never thought about that, but I, I do, when a wine's been opened t- two days, three days, I'll, I'll taste it before I send it out, and I find that's true. I, I, I tend to pour more Pinot Noir down the drain than, than Cabernet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah.
1: I didn't really think yeah. about it. You're, you're right, yeah. But the temperature of wine, you know, so you mentioned putting the red wine in the fridge at the end of the night, but um it— Red wine, room temperature is actually a little, little too warm to serve red wine, isn't it?
0: Yes, and Americans tend to keep their red wines too warm and their white wines too cold. Exactly. So
1: Yeah, so uh, if we have our white wines in the same cooler as our beer, <laughs> that's too cold.
0: <laughs> it is, it is. It, it creates a problem in terms of just how the flavors are expressed. Uh, the nose is muted. So when, when something is too cold, you can't really taste all the flavors. And when red wine is too warm, uh, it can appear uh, the alcohol may show first over the fruit uh, in the nose. And it's also not the way that uh, it would be served coming out of the uh, a wine cellar, which is the ideal way to um, think about red wine.
1: Exactly, yeah. Our, yeah, our wine cellar is, uh, I think we keep it at 58 degrees, and uh, that's, yeah, 60 degrees. That's about the right temperature for a red wine, yeah? Yes,
0: yeah. yes.
1: Oh, what about uh, letting wine breathe? How, you know, how, much, how do we how, how do we think about that? Obviously, that's not something we think about with um, wines we serve by the glass. But um, I guess a lot of older, you know, well, guests will ask for it. You know, to, for their wine to be open half an hour, or maybe they might even call ahead of time and ask for it to be open an hour before they show up. So, um, h- how should we think about that?
0: It's it's really helpful to have wine decanted and opens, but not you don't need to do that with every wine. There are only certain wines that really require it. And most wines are fine uh, just being opened five, ten minutes. And also having them poured in the glass and swirled around, that allows for the oxygen to enter the wine and to start showing its, um, you know, the actual flavors and colors and nose. All start to show with a little bit of aeration,
1: right? So, it, so the wine is, uh, I guess, oxidizing a little bit, right? Which a little bit, a little, but it, and, and so that'll affect the. Will it um, reduce the the tannins or um, change the acidity over time?
0: Yes. Well, what, what it will do is it will just allow uh, the flavors to express better. You certainly don't want to get caught up with thinking about oxygenation. It's it's not quite that because that can turn uh, wine into off flavors and that's not what's really happening in the glass. Um, what, what it does allow though is for everyone to have a better experience, just starting with the nose of the wine and into the mouth and with, um, what happens as the flavors start to blossom.
1: Right. And that's the, uh, the enjoyment is the whole thing. That's what we're trying to get to, right?
0: That's, that's what matters. We can talk about all these details, but do I like it? Do I not like it? And how do I repeat the experience and at the same time be able to try and experiment with things that I can have fun with?
1: That's it. That sounds great. So just uh, tell us quickly about yourself. You've worked as a wine importer, a marketer, educator, and uh, you've done a lot of different things in the wine business, eh?
0: Yes, and uh, I, I do come from a traditional marketing background. Um, I've done a decade of international trade, so I've had the experience of working internationally. And um, I fell into the wine business, as so many of us do, Uh And uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. I've been on the supply side, distribution side, import side, and I run a marketing agency where we work with brands from all over the world.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. I I learned a lot, and I hope uh, our listeners did as well. And I hope to um, share a glass of wine with you one day.
0: Absolutely. None of this virtual stuff. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Brian, for having me today.
1: Thank you, Monica. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Take care great information there. I would encourage you to find a way to sample as much really good quality wines as you can, whether you go to in- industry wine events or get your suppliers to taste you on some great wines. I think it goes a long way to increasing your awareness of, wi- of wine. Drinking really good wine, for one, can get you excited about it about, and uh, just helps you learn about the nuances. Where I work, I often open bottles uh, for our guests. When they order our full bottle, I I go out on the floor and open the bottles uh, a lot of times. Uh, You know, I work in a private club, so talk about regulars. Everybody's a regular. I get to know people pretty well. But uh, anyway, if somebody orders a nice bottle of wine that I haven't tried before, I'll drop a hint, and they'll usually say, get a glass and pour yourself a taste. This is even more true when somebody brings their own bottle and we're charging a corkage fee. They're proud of the bottle they picked out and happy to share it. I tasted some pretty awesome 1989 Bordeaux this way just this past weekend. But uh, I think this can work for you, too. I mean, whether it's uh, regulars or, or not, you know. So if you, if you, have, the, uh, if you have a nice, friendly um, relationship with people or with your guests or uh, if the mood seems right, you know, give it a try, drop a hint. Maybe they'll offer you a taste. Stand by for our toast, but first I'll remind you, my name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Bartender Journey and on Facebook, you can search for Bartender Journey and like that page, like it. Hey, if the shows help you out at all or entertain you or whatever, and you'd like to see it continue, please consider leaving a little something in our tip cup at bartenderjourney.net slash tip cup. You can support this show and help keep the lights on and the audio flowing. Also, if you work for a brand or another business that would benefit from reaching our community, of bartenders and enthusiasts. Please get in touch to find out about sponsorship opportunities. Use our contact page at bartenderjourney.net slash contact. Okay, here's our toast. And it's a wine. It's a wine toast. Here's to water. Water divine. It dews the grapes that give us wine. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast.